So this evening, I like actually to talk a little about something a bit different, maybe going a little slightly away from the practical, and look at evolution, tradition, ethics, and compassion. And to do that, I will talk a bit about a text I translated and was published, which is called the Brahmasnet Sutra. And uh, so I, I translated it. It's a Korean text, but it's also a Chinese text. And actually, the text is the presentation of the Bodhisattva precepts that are taken in the Chinese, Korean, also Japanese Mahayana. And so basically, the Bodhisattva precept are the precept for those who aspire to awakening for the sake of everyone. And working on this text really made me, in a way, reflect on how do we know the Dharma? You know, how is, I mean, Stephen has been talking about the Pali text. And in a way, how do we know the Dharma? How does it come, is it transmitted to us? And generally, either it is transmitted orally or it is transmitted through text. And then you are presented with text. And what is, what is interesting, you, you have a text in front of you, and you read it, and generally you have this feeling that this text is true. But true in which way? Is it historically true? Is it theologically true? I mean, we, we have the feeling there is truth in it. And we have the feeling that this, this truth has been there forever in that way. We have this feeling, this text, which is presented to us right here, has been the same. You know, the Buddha said it, and it went through 2,500 years, and we get it, and it's right there. And it must be identical with what was happening then. But I think, in a way, what we know Historically, that tradition evolves, and also text evolves. And at that level, one could say also the Dharma evolves. And what is interesting with the Brahmanet Sutra, so it's a, it's a text which has an introduction, talking about the precept, where it happened, how it happened, and of course, it is said to be said by the Buddha, of course. Though it's said to be, also, Varochana Buddha is in there, which is like a more of a mystical Buddha. So, again, the historical thing is a little kind of fuzz, we could say. But it's got 10 major precepts and 48 secondary precepts. And basically, it's about harmony, compassion, liberation. And so, basically, looking at the precept, at the way of life. <laughs> which would help us to develop wisdom, compassion, to attain liberation. So I uh, had to translate it from Korean. I, uh, I did it from the Korean text, but with the help of the Chinese text, and also with the help, because uh, I had done first translation, but for the publication I wanted to check it out. So I had my Korean, my Chinese, and then I had three. Uh, one... French translation of the Chinese text and then two other English translation of the Chinese text. It was great fun. For four months, I had lots of fun. I know it might seem a little dry, but I had lots of fun, you know. 
looking at my translation, looking at their translation. And what was interesting is that most of the time, we translated things in a similar way. So we had the same meaning. The meaning was pretty similar, but what was fascinating to me that they used different words than I used, and so each of us had a little different tinge, little different color. I was really struck by that. But then there would come time where just three Chinese characters, I mean, no major one, would just be translated so differently. I mean, totally opposed or totally going in different direction. And I was very troubled because I wanted to translate the true meaning. You know, I don't want to give uh, bad goods. You know, I wanted the true translation. And, but we gave three totally different translations. And the Korean also was a little different. So finally, I sent an email to my famous great scholar friend who knows Chinese and Korean and is top, top, top scholar in his field. And I said to him, how can I find the true meaning? And then he sent me back this email and he said, when you translate Chinese, especially of ancient time, truth is a little hard to come by. <laughs> but what you can do is construe the meaning that makes the most sense to you. And when I saw that you construe the meaning, this was liberation. I realized that actually any translation is an adaptation. Just the way you understand it, the, the word you choose, and in a way you construe the meaning of this text. And so it is possibly true in some ways, but it really showed me that when we read a sacred text, which has been translated in different ways over time, it has evolved. We're actually reading an evolution. And then when we read it, we also have another evolution of what sense I read into it. Two persons can could make a totally different sense, could find a different meaning in the same text. And in a way, this is why the tradition, Buddhist tradition, has evolved. You have different texts, and then different schools have done different things with them. I've seen different things in them. A word which did not mean much to one school was like, I mean, the bees need to another. And, and a whole school have been created over just one word sometimes. And so in a way to see, in a way when we, it comes to us, we have this dharma in front of us. And so what is interesting with this text is that the Buddha was 2,500 years ago. Although the Bodhisattva precepts are supposed to come from the Buddha, actually, historically, you can see that it is not so. That actually, it was written, people think, between 440 AD and 480 AD. And one of the ways you can know is that they use certain words which are so typically, so typically Chinese that you would not find them in that way in the Pali text. And the main one is filial piety. You have it everywhere in that text. 
which you would not find like that in the Pali text. So that's why you know it is kind of like a Chinese text. And personally, what I think happened is that you had all the texts came to China, Buddhism came to China in the first, second century AD, then all the translation happened, and when everything was translated, then in a way the Chinese did their own thing, something that would fit for them, because it came from the Pali Sanskrit, was Sanskrit in those days, then it was translated into Chinese. And then, in a way, it was foreign ideas. I mean, it was a message of the Buddha, but within a foreign culture. And in a way, the, the Chinese has, had to make it their own. It had to kind of uh, reflect their culture. It had to feed their culture. So in a way, we went from something which was then, by then, quite metaphysical, to something, it, it, there they, the Chinese made it more pragmatic. They made it more kind of personal. They also looked at kind of what is interesting with the Bodhisattva precept. It's quite, some aspect is quite political, actually, looking at the rapport between the king and the monks, the kings and the people. You see that, you know, there, there was certain interest in a certain way. It had to fit the circumstances. And I think this is what evolution is about. You have a sacred text, and at the same time, it is not absolute. It is also shaped. The traditional issues also shaped by the people who receive it. So it's kind of like a give and take. And what is interesting with this text and why I translated it was because in Korea we recited it once a month. And then over time I started, at the beginning I had no idea what it was about. And then after a year I started to understand Korean better and then I could understand what were the precepts, the Bodhisattva precept? And then I realized that a lot of what the monks and the nuns did was because of this precept, that actually it had an effect on their life, in terms of their community life, in terms especially on the compassion attitude, and also in terms of certain things they did. Like if my teacher, Master Kuzan, went to the field to work, and if he met a car on the way, he would pat it, and then he would say something sotto voce. And I was always curious, but what is he saying to that cow? You know, <laughs> what is going on here? And finally, I found it in the Bodhisattva precept. Because in the Bodhisattva precept, it says, whenever you encounter an animal, you must wish it well sotto voce so that it can awaken in a future life. So that's what he was doing. You know, hoping the car, you know, wishing well to the car for a future life. Another thing I could see in action in the Korean uh, temple was the idea of forgiveness. That's something we really had a hard time with Westerners. Because they had this uh, tradition in the Korean monastery and nunnery that if you make a mistake, you just have to bow three times to the, somebody a little higher up, and you just say, I made a mistake, you bounce three times, and this is forgotten forever after. Because in the West, we forgive, but we don't forget. <laughs> but there it was. I mean, I was always surprised. And sometimes, you know, if we made a mistake, the Westerner, you know, then Master Cousin would say, you know, you made a mistake. And then we would say, well, but you know, really, there was a reason. And then we would go into this huge story. And he was sitting there, and I could see, he was thinking, but 
if they just bowed, <laughs> said they made a mistake, you know, we would be over and we could move on. Because, I mean, the idea was to know or be aware of the mistake and in a way saying, I will try not to do it again. And this came again from the Bodhisattva precept. Because in it, there is that one must, one should forgive someone. And if someone comes to ask for forgiveness, if one remains angry, then this is an offense. So in a way, the Bodhisattva precept, in a way, where the, the root, the source of that forgiveness ritual. But what is also interesting, what I learned in uh, translating that text is that at one level, it's universal. Because, I mean, it, uh, it came up in the 440, 480. So the text has been around for 1,500 years. And actually, to this day, it can be useful. I mean, some things are very parochial and really about things which happened in China in the 5th century. But a lot of them are very just things that you could still apply today. Very kind of, so at that level, it's a very universal message of compassion that can be applied by everybody. Message of compassion, message of liberation. But what I found interesting too is that there is an aside to the text was that it argues a case for the Mahayana. And it really promotes the superiority of the Mahayana against the dreaded Inayana, who often are, in the text said, they're not better than stones. <laughs> and what I saw is that, again, I mean, since then, when I read sacred texts, and often I see, I see, in a way, what uh, is inspirational in terms of wisdom, compassion, etc. And then, generally, often you have another strand which is a strand which is about one's superiority. Because in a way, it's, it's PR. You know, you, you know, if you want to find people to believe in you, you in a way have to say, well, look, this is you know, really good goods. You want them. And you want them because they're superior to the other goods. I mean, this is kind of you know, commercial. But I think you know, sacred text is the same. And so in a way, what I realized, a lot of the time sacred text the side message is actually to set itself in opposition to something else. Because in order to prove your superiority, you can't do it uh, in absence. You have to do it in opposition to something. And I think we have to be careful of that discourse. That it be, I would say, certain Buddhist texts or certain other texts to notice when from that universal wisdom and compassion language, then it moved into this opposition, into this claim of superiority. I mean, one text which also does that very clearly for me is the Sixth Patriarch, the Platform Sutra, which is a wonderful text. It's a Zen text. Wonderful. But again, you have some passages which are actually not so compassionate. And it's the same in the Brahmanet Sutra. Most of it is very wise, compassionate. And then you get this one or two passage, and it's, ooh, that's not very nice. <laughs> and so I think it's important for us when we, we, we read sacred texts to see what is a message, you know, and what message do I want to buy? What message do I want to apply? 
And it seems to me often that superiority message, that oppositional message, we can in a way leave on the side and actually just take what we can use in our daily life in terms of the universality of the wisdom, of the compassion. So this text, the Brahmanet Sutra, is very much about compassion and ethics. And basically, what is interesting is that it's not just rule and regulation. That's what I like it. You know, you have a title of a kind of a line, do not kill, for example, but it does not stay there. Then you have a commentary. And what you can see, it's very much about altruism and awareness. Again and again, it looks at ethics, not in terms of you should not do that, but it looks at ethics in terms not of it's good or bad, but in terms of is it causing harm or not? Is it helping you to awaken? Is it helping you to help others to awaken? This is, in a way, the criteria for the precept, for why you would want to follow this precept, because it would help you in that way. So with the first one, which is a very common one, the do not kill, what is interesting is that it goes on. Do not do it yourself. Do not cause someone else to do it. Do not do it in a roundabout way. Do not create the causes and condition to do it. And it kind of then what, it's interesting, it's look at the multiple level of our responsibility. How do we act? How do we interact? How do we influence each other? I mean, you might not kill people, but do we cause harm? You might not cause harm directly, but don't you sometimes cause harm indirectly? Do not actually, do, do we create the causes and conditions? I think a lot of gossiping, when there is argument be- between people, do you just try to create harmony, try to kind of bring it down, or do you go to, yes, you know, and he said that nasty about you, and you kind of, you know, make it even worse. What do we do? Do we kind of, It's not just about us not doing something, because it's easy not to kill in a way. It's easy not to cause harm directly sometimes. But sometimes I think it's also important to see what is our effort and what is our intention in terms of this harmfulness or harmlessness. And so in a way, it's it's not a rule and regulation. It's more this kind of idea of non-harming, this idea of being compassionate, and leading others to liberation. And then this precept actually had many ramifications in terms of the action of the Buddhist people, the Chinese Buddhist people. One of them, because one of the things that come later is a save living creature, that not only you don't harm people, but it extends to everything. And then there is this injunction, not only not to kill, but actually to save living creatures. And then they started this ceremony, which you might find even nowadays, when you go to Korea, China, or Japan, of saving animals, of freeing animals. So what happened is that people go to the market, they buy live birds or live fish, and then they go and release them. And then the people in the market catch them again and then sell them again. So you see, from one precept, you start to have a whole enterprise. 
But actually, he got to the point, like in the 1900, 1800, that uh, a scholar was describing, if you went to big temple in China, they had enclosures in which you would have the retired cow, the retired fish, the retired animal that people would bring. They would not want to kill them, so they would bring to the monastery. And then the monastery was like a bit like a zoo <laughs> with all these animals there to take care of. Again, because of that bodhisattva idea, that bodhisattva precept. Then you have quite a few precepts about anger. And again, it's not saying don't be angry, but it's more looking at the psychological and emotional condition that anger creates for causing harm. So this is, the, this is a saying again, anger per se is an emotion, but that emotion can make you cause harm. And then he tells you the various things you are really encouraged not to do, because again, that would be an offense. So you should not abuse animals. One I really like, uh, especially, is you should not hit inanimate objects. <laughs> so I mean, 1,500 years ago, the Chinese were advised to not, you know, kick cart or whatever that was not working. But, I mean, it's still applied today. You can still apply it to your computer, your car, or whatever. You know, I mean, to me, that's what is interesting in this kind of text. It so shows the human nature in a way, kind of a little similar, has not changed so much. We should not vent our anger on servants. I mean, we do not have servants anymore, but we have the service industry. And I think this is, again, to look. How are we when somebody calls you on the phone? Do you want double glazing? You know, and it's a third phone call you got. Or if you have trouble with your computer, you know, and you have been waiting for half an hour and it's costing you so much, and finally you get somebody telling you that to do the thing you have already done three times, and you say, can you kind of remain equanimous? So in a way, it is encourages, encouraging us to be equanimous and compassionate, even in those conditions. And so in a way, it's kind of looking at the root of anger, looking at the expression of anger, and in a way seeing what we're trying to do is cultivate wisdom and compassion. How? And so in a way to just kind of let ourselves be lost in anger, in a way would, would in a way lose a little that development of wisdom, of compassion, then there is also quite a few precepts about cultivating positive and beneficial activity for self and others. One of them, for example, is to rescue people from difficulties. So if you see people in difficulty, really encourage to really help them to do something for them. Another one is to help people who are sick. And the commentary say you must treat the people who are ill as if it was a Buddha himself who was ill. And so you really should be compassionate to them, really be helpful for them, just as if they were the Buddha himself. Then you have quite a few, again, quite a few precepts about stealing and dealing with property. And this is very interesting. And the idea about stealing is not so much that it was illegal, but that to steal would be about against the Buddha nature. It would be against developing, going toward awakening. 
And so then it again goes into its pragmatic. So it tells you to not do business with a negative intent. You should not extort money and goods using threat and violence with the help of well-placed people. <laughs> you had the feeling that the person who wrote this had some kind of a met, some example of corruption. I have a feeling he kind of, they kind of seems to know about that. Because again, they, they say it would be against developing a mind of compassion. And so to me, what is interesting is that the, the, the Chinese people received all the text from India, all the ethical texts, the various ethical texts. And then they, they decided to create an ethical text which would respond to their situation. And what is interesting, the specificity about this text is that it can be both applied to the monks and to the lay people. <coughs> Until then, it was separate. And the other specificity is that it tells you that if there is nobody around, you can take the precept yourself. So in a way, you don't need to receive them from anybody else. Of your own accord, you can be moved and decide to take the precept because that's what, that in that way, you want to cultivate your life. If you want to develop wisdom, you don't to develop compassion. And what I found interesting is in a way to think that to me what this text helps me to do is to reflect on what kind of ethical precept would I want to follow now? What kind of ethical precept would help me in my life now? Would help me on the path? Would help us to develop wisdom and compassion? And in a way, the Chinese kind of created theirs. And I wonder how Westerner, we, took, we could develop a certain ethics that would inspire us, in a way, on the path. Another thing that is interesting with this precept is often it says, if you intentionally do this, if you de deliberately do this. So also being conscious, for example, if we cause harm, are we causing harm intentionally? Are we causing harm deliberately? Or is it accidental? Because sometimes you might cause harm, but you really did not mean it. You really did not do it on purpose. So it makes a difference between an act which is intentional and an act which is accidental. But also, I think it makes me reflect to look when we actually accidentally repeat certain things. One wonders how accidental it is. I mean, once, yes, twice, yes, three times, one wonders. <laughs> so then it makes us reflect. I did it accidentally, but what were the conditions that give rise to that? To me, this precept is very much about that, about an intention, an aspiration for wisdom and compassion, but also, again, back to this awareness. In a way, we need to be aware in order to be ethical. We need to be aware in order to see, but what is, where does my action come from? What is the result of them? What is the effect? What is my intention behind it? And this leads me, in a way, to the, the practice of compassion. And I think, in a way, we have to be careful because at one level, yes. Yes, somebody was asking us the other day if we were naturally good, human beings were naturally good. And at one level, it seems one could say yes. Within us, there seems to be that innate response of compassion. That if somebody is ill, generally 
we respond with compassion. We see suffering and we want to alleviate it. We want to help the person who is in pain. So there is this innate movement of the heart toward people who suffer. And at the same time, personally, I don't feel that just the feeling is enough. What if you don't feel like it? They suffer and too bad, it's your karma, next life, better chance. (laughs) It seems to me also there is this practice, this cultivation of compassion. That actually the feeling and the practice goes together. That we can have the feeling, but we also need in a way to cultivate compassion, to cultivate a compassionate attitude. But what would that require? I think the first thing that a compassionate attitude requires is that we are aware of the other. And so I would say, in a way, one of the obstacles to compassion is our self-centeredness. When we are so obsessed with ourselves, then it's very hard to see others. Often we see others in connection to our well-being. When actually I think this precept and the path of the Buddha is trying to help us to become more other-centered. So that actually, yes, there is our well-being, but there is also other well-being. What am I doing that also is for the benefit of others and not just the benefit of myself? What is interesting, there is one precept which actually is very tough among those ones. And it says that you should forget again about forgiveness, and then the commentary is, whatever good you have, you should give to others. Whenever somebody, any slanders that goes toward others, you should take on yourself. This, I think, is like, you know, one of the most difficult things we might do. Because, you know, if somebody kind of uh, slanders us, we don't like it. I really hate it generally. And so, do we feel ready if somebody slanders somebody else? Can we say, yes, I can take that? I was teaching and there was one fellow who said, oh yes, I do this. He works for, um, he's a Buddhist, he's a meditator, and he works for a kind of um, a drug addiction kind of helping place. And so he works with uh, different kind of people. And sometimes they kind of all get a little stress. And then they often accuse each other of things, which could be true. And often he said, oh, I did it, I did it. <laughs> and generally he deflects. So if it's him, all right, you know. Then it kind of deflects a bit the atmosphere. And so it kind of is kind of, in a way, taking, can we take others' place? And to me this is, again, what awareness at the root of compassion in a way need to be a certain empathy. And that's what I found beautiful in, often in the, in the teaching of the Buddha is how he can really put himself in the place of people who, he suffer, who suffer. He, he knows what it feels like. And he tried to tell others what it feels like. And because it feels painful, then you don't want to do it. And so, in a way, to me, this compassion, the practice of compassion, is a practice of seeing the other, is a practice of listening to the other, is a practice of having empathy for another life. 
But what also is interesting about the Buddha is how he really sees compassion as equally for self and others. That is not just often when we have this idea of compassion, it's just for others. I need to be selfless. I need to totally disappear for others. But Buddha said, no, you need to have as much compassion for yourself as for others. And to me, it's like there is a spectrum of compassion. That sometimes it's more for others, sometimes it's more for ourselves, and sometimes it's in the middle. And again, this is according to compassion. So there is not a certain type of Buddhist compassion. But to me, it's more like a creative, wise, compassionate response. That when something happens, in a way we respond in a creatively wise and compassionate way to that moment. And also we try to do the best we can. Because at one level we have no idea what is going to be the result. And I think this is one of the challenges of ethics. That we must make choice when we act. And we hope for the best. And we never know what's going to happen. But at the same time, we can be aware of the result and see, is it beneficial or not? Did I help or not? And to me, at that level, that's why listening is so important. That's why I suggest a listening meditation. So we become more listening to, in a way, the cry of the world, like the Bodhisattva of compassion. What is it that people need? Can I give it? This is the next question. Somebody might want something from you, might need something, and actually you might not be able to give it. So in a way, there is, I would say, in compassion, this tension between the suffering, between the need, between also your suffering, your need. And I think also with compassion, one has to be careful that it is not necessarily comfortable because when somebody suffers and we are with them in their suffering, it is painful. And that's why I think, again, it's so important to develop stability and openness. So that when there is suffering, we can be with it. We can have a creative, wise response. But we're not overwhelmed. We're not paralyzed by it. I mean, uh, some years ago, when we were in South Africa, we were asked to go to visit a hut because people were in difficulty with the idea that we would help because time to time we help out a little in the Zulu village financially. And so we went to this hut. And this was, I would say, the worst hut I had ever seen. There was nothing, nothing, just a broken pot. And these two little kids who looked really kind of, you know, full of scabby and really... And there was this old lady, and she looked so depressed, so hopeless. I sat there, and I felt so sad. I felt, oh, I felt like, in a way, the hopelessness, the helplessness of the situation. They had no means to have any financial of anything. The, The people had died. It was kind of really, really a big mess, the situation. And I was sitting there feeling very sad. And at the same time, the sadness was about this family. I can do something, which we did. And we uh, support the, the kids and the grandmother. 
And then I thought, but all this family in South Africa, all over the world, were in the same situation as these two little children and this lady. And I cannot help them. And actually, I was quite sad for a week. I mean, it did not stop me from doing what was uh, we financially we helped. And next time we saw them, the little girl looked great. They go to school. The grandma looked back to her age of 55, and she's much better. And you can see she has hope. So they are in very good shape now. But at the same time, whenever I think of them, there is a joy to know they're better, and there is also the sadness of knowing the limitation of my compassion. And so in a way, that's why I think when we talk of compassion, we also need to, to remember wisdom and also need to, I would say, practice meditation to help us to have that stability, that openness, and being able to be with what is difficult. And so the feeling might not be pleasant. But if we don't grasp at the feeling, we can just be with the feeling. And in a way, honor that feeling and have that compassionate gesture. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. No, what is interesting, because since then I've been very interested in ethics in different ways, and I've looked at the Pali text, all the bits which really have the precept. And I think the Bodhisattva precept is not related as such to the Vinaya. This is a, a monastic code, and it's very different. Though you have a little the same intention, which is about non-harming, but it's more kind of in a way, the Vinaya is more about rule and regulation. What monks and nuns should do so that it keeps harmonious, they keep together, they practice, etc. So I think the influence comes more from like the Sigalavaka Sutta, from other various other Sutta I have found in the Pali text, which are basically either about right livelihood or who are about just the way of life of the lay person. And again and again, I find very similar in terms of the livelihood, what he said in the, in the Chinese text, what he said in the Pali, very similar, very similar. So I think it comes more, actually, from what is called in Chinese agamas, which is where you will find those, uh, those precepts here and there. You find them, like the Sigevalada Sutta, which is the longest one. But you also have two or three other ones. Yes? Not a question, just a, a comment, really. <clears throat> it's, it's just when you said about the people ringing up about double glazing. Uh, I, on one occasion, I've had two phone calls during the evening trying to sell things, and the third one, the woman started the other end, and I just put the phone down. And ten seconds later, it rang again, so I phoned, here's another one, picked it up. And she said, you may not like what I'm doing, but you need to be so rude when she put the phone down on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So since then, I've been, I've been compassionate to them. And, and I've said, I don't like what you're doing, but I know it's not your fault. 
Exactly. I generally I say I'm sorry, but I really don't need it. <laughs> yes. In uh, your comment about perhaps developing an inspirational text on ethics for the West, the Dalai Lama produced the book I think Ethics for Modern Living, mm-hmm. which was a, a targeted at a broader than the Buddhist community. Um, do you think because I mean he has wonderful PR, you know, um, you know and he he is a, a wonderful person, obviously. Do you think that that would be the basis for a, a start, uh, you know, to build on that? Uh, I have not read it, so but I very likely he might have taken it actually from the Bodhisattva vows. What is very interesting in the Tibetan tradition, you have a text which has, I think. 10 major and maybe 50. They have two more than the Chinese. They have a little more, more vows there. And what is very interesting is that it's a bit a similar type of text, but culturally it's very different. And so some are similar in terms of wisdom and compassion, and some are so Tibetan, you know. And, and, and so I would not be, and uh, in my translation, which is called The Path of Compassion, at the end, I have the Tibetan Bodhisattva vows, so one can compare. And those, I feel very likely the, the Dalai Lama, I mean, he also wrote a foreword to my text, but I'm not sure if he read my text or not. <laughs> uh, very likely he inspired himself, I would not be surprised, from these Bodhisattva vows, but do, do gave it a modern twist. But I would say one of the very interesting uh, new development in terms of ethics, uh, which is an interesting text, is the precept of Tiknatan, the precept for the, uh, the interbeing. I forgot the name. But then he has about, if I'm not mistaken, it may be 16, the 16 mindfulness precepts. And what is interesting with Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese monk, you might have heard of him, he's written Being Peace, one of his most famous books. And it, they change a little. You see, because I have a version of uh, way, way back, and then every 10 years I have the feeling they kind of review them a little. And so it's kind of interesting to look at the different version. This is another thing. Uh, his version is quite modern. It's quite interesting what he does. And I think very likely a new version could be uh, inspired by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But it seems to me that Thich Nhat Hanh might be more active in terms of ethics because this is something he does that he see a great need for nowadays. And so since about five years, he encouraged a lot of people to take those precepts in order for them to become conscious of it and then to retake them regularly together, so to reflect on them. So it's not just rule and regulation, and you put them on the board, but it's something that you really reflect on. These I would recommend to have a look at. They're very interesting. Yes? Do we need uh, ethics? Um, I'm thinking if, if we cultivate uh, compassion and awareness, Generally, this is an idea. But you see, I think 
uh, why the Buddha? I mean, the Buddha was very clear. I mean, he really talked a lot about ethics. I mean, talked a lot about many different things, but ethics were one of them. And it was very clear that we needed to cultivate the three things, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And tomorrow I'll touch a little on it, but I can briefly mention, to, to me what is interesting is that you have people who do a lot of meditation, or you have people who study a lot of the text, and it doesn't mean that they will necessarily be ethical. I mean, one of the worst examples is the... How does it I forgot the name now. The Japanese kamikaze pilot. Seemingly they were trained in Zen meditation so they could do it better. So, you see, I would say yes. You see, if you keep the intention of compassion, but compassion, you see, you have to be careful because sometimes... You see, you have this idea of going beyond good and evil, and then you can do whatever you want because it will be wise. In my experience, it doesn't seem to be so, you know. Uh, and once we had this uh, meeting with uh, the Dalai Lama long ago, a small meeting, and people were talking about crazy wisdom, you know, which means you were enlightened and you could do whatever you wanted. And the Dalai Lama said, but if they are, oh, you know, really, really awakened, then normally they should be able to, you know, to drink their urine and they, to eat their feces, and instead they choose to go and drink alcohol, you know. So he, he thought, you know, to me, the problem, you see, the ethics, to me, is very much about living in the world. It's about looking at our action in the world. Because in a way, the spiritual path could be quite too individualistic. You know, I am compassionate, but are you compassionate in the mind? I mean, it's easy to be compassionate in the mind. I love everybody, but you might hate your neighbor. You know, to me, this is, in a way, you, of course, if you have a, a, a direct experiential kind of conduct of compassion, Yes, it would be, but then you would be ethical. You see, to me, that's where it comes in. To me, ethics is about compassion and vice versa. But ethics is it kind of saying, look, what is your impact on yourself and others? What is your impact on the world? And so it's kind of to kind of make us reflect more on the kind of the whole kind of interaction. To me, this is what ethics is kind of like, kind of different theme. The meditation is in a way the theme of developing calmness and clarity. Ethics is the theme of looking at our, the effect of our action in the world and the way we relate to people, interact. And the wisdom is the way we use our mind in a reflective and experiential way. So it's kind of, to me, the three training are addressing different aspects of our being. So that personally the way I would see it. But tomorrow I'll talk a little more about uh, what you are referring to. Because this is in a way the idea that if we are fully awakened, then we would act naturally, ethically. This is the idea of the harahant. But I'll talk more about it tomorrow. And thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.